You're listening to Ambe, a year of Indigenous reading. All right, so we are going to be talking about refusing the patriarchy today. Um, I started off thinking about Mother's Day and thinking about mothers and then thinking about, well, what does it mean to live in this world as a mother when you don't necessarily fit that mold? Because lots of people take on mothering roles, right? Without necessarily, you know, kind of being what we might think of as a conventional mother. Um, You know, so lots of people taking on mothering roles, lots of people living outside of what we, you know, we would think of as a gender binary, you know, and so I'm, And we often talk that way about, you know, women and LGBTQ people, like we're all kind of lumped together into one group. And so then I started doing that. And I'm not sure that that's really okay either. Um, So then I started thinking, okay, well, how are we all navigating the patriarchy? We're all kind of working our way through it. And then I didn't really like that because that sounded too much like patriarchy's legitimately in charge of everything. And it really isn't. (laughs) So then I thought, okay, now we're resisting the patriarchy. And still that sounded wrong. That sounded like there's still this big authority. And then I remembered a conversation I had um, uh, with Brianna Urena Raveo. We've had her on the pod a couple of times. And she talks about refusal and the politics of refusal. And that's how I landed on refusing the future. Because we are going to live our own lives in our own terms as mothers, as not mothers, as people who provide care in our communities. Um, We're gonna do that on our own terms and the patriarchy can just do whatever it needs to do. So (laughs) yes, we're smashing the page. So Ernestine ended the memoir conversation, decolonize and smash the patriarchy. So um, I'm gonna kind of go around and have everybody introduce themselves. And we're gonna start with Nessa because she's, He's going to leave us shortly to to manage um, the chat room, which will probably be quiet today because I completely forgot that this was this week. I thought it was next week. Oops. Thanks, Nick. (laughs) Nick sent me a message yesterday saying, hey, so is there a link? How's this going to work? And I was like, holy shit, that's tomorrow. (laughs) What it is, tell us they could have. But that's okay. It will live forever on the release of the podcast. Mm-hmm. everybody will get a chance to hear our genius so janessa uh it's just gonna be me talking to myself in this chat room that's great um <laughs> so i am janessa hello um i feel like i should have like a fun fact every time i come on here because yes. i come on here every every uh every month and i'm like hi i'm janessa this is the book goodbye um i don't have a fun fact right now but anyway <laughs> oh, I met Patty on Twitter. Fun fact. I feel like a lot of you probably did too. Um, I read uh, Tanya Tagok's book, <laughs> Slit Two, and um, it was it was really good. It was really hard to read. I remember I got it and I was like super pumped and I told Patty I got it and she's like, yeah, it'll be a heavy one. And I was like, okay. And it was, it was really heavy, um, but it was, it was really good. It was beautifully written. Um, I'm really happy that I was able to read it. And some of the things that I was sort of, I guess, thinking about um, when I was reading it, well, one thing is I feel like I need to reread it again to like fully like grasp, like I feel like there's some really deep themes in here that 
kind of maybe went over my head a little bit on the first read. But one of the things that I thought was like interesting was, well, there's two things. She has a poem in here that's written in her language. And I think it's really cool and powerful that she doesn't give, there's no translation for it. It's just there. And I'm like, that's, I was like, oh, that's really neat. It's kind of like, I feel like when I read a book, I just want everything to be like given to me, which is very selfish. Like I kind of center myself a little bit when I'm reading a book and I was like, oh, it's, it's like, it's not about me. They're not giving me the translation. This is just here. It's beautiful. And, um, and then the main character in the book is she becomes a mother. She's a girl who becomes a mother. And I remember I was reading through it and I actually went back and like reread because I was like, who's the father? She never says who the father is. And I don't know why, but for some reason that was really unsettling for me. And I was like, why is, why is this so, why is this such a big deal for me? Why do I need to like know who the dad is? Like, I was like, oh, yeah. Anyway, those are just two, two thoughts that I sort of had about the book, but I was like, I don't need to know everything. I don't need to know who the dad is. And I don't even know why that's, why that's such a big, why, why, why is that important for me? Yeah. Okay. I've talked enough. There's a lot of you here and I'm sure you'll have many more cool and exciting things to say. And Carrie's here. Yay. Yay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to turn off my camera now. Okay, so if uh, if you do have um, a link to something that you want Janessa to put into the chat or something you want to clarify, um, like she'll be on the managing the chat on Twitch, so you can just send her a message and let her know what you want. Or similarly, she's going to relay back questions or comments that you know that people are making on the conversation. And if there's something that you want to clarify about what you've said, like spellings or something that you just want to make sure that they understand, you know, the people in the chat understand, then um, yeah, just shoot that over to Janessa because that's she's kind of our go-between uh, between Zoom and uh, Zoom and Twitch. Hey, Angela. Hi. Um, this is new. I've never done anything like this before, but I've been on her show before, so. <laughs> So I'm really, really pleased. I read everybody's bio, so I'm very excited about all of you um, getting to hear from all of you. Um, the book that I have been reading, and it's called um, How We Fight Right White Supremacy. And I've been reading it on and now for a year. And um, be, for two reasons, I've been reading a lot of other books, but I keep coming back to this book because it's written from all black writers from um, the States. And there are just connecting points for me um, in how I live my life and raising my son on my own, who's um, um, black indigenous and feeling isolated and um, partly from my upbringing, being raised in a white family to being here and not having a community. So I, I felt and particularly this last year that real need for community and this book has given me that um it there are there's points where i laugh there's points where i cry when this um woman was describing her experience with a coach calling her aunt jemima you know i went back to my childhood and my white mother dressed me as aunt jemima for halloween and just you know and feeling like okay i'm not like the only one and i think that with everything that's been going on this year and watching my son um, have some 
not great experiences with the police here in Vancouver. It's just allowed me to land in a place where um, a black voice, it's black art, like there's a really great um, comic strip in there. There's, you know, it talks about um, an all black uh, store that sells black dolls, which I think you know, I had my first black doll until I was like five or until I was 10, didn't even know they existed. Um, and talking also about um, the connection of black hair um, from, from an African standpoint where it was really, you know, hair defined what um, tribe you came from. It defined status. It was a way, a means of communication. And, you know, I all the inceptions of hair that I've had from, you know, my Tina Turner look to, uh, you know, now dreads and Grace Jones for a while. And that I'm really dating myself there. Um, so <laughs> all of that, um, it really, explore that idea of identity and then watching my son who's you know had the big afro and his um, cornrows and trying to figure out his black indigenous um, identity through his hair and those um, connecting points so I just keep going back to this book um, for those reasons I read it and keep reading it and keep reading it and it was just a lovely gift from somebody um, that really felt would be good for me and so I appreciate when people give you books because it's, it really is an act of love. Well, gifts are the best gifts. Dance, everyone. Nigazidorem. Wazekoni Mashkikina Tishnekas. Nihianatia Tensamak Metis Irish Endow. I mean, Ayagweo Endow. Meanwhile, Igi Agamit Endow. So um, I'm uh, Sean Kinsella. Um, and I just introduced my clan, which is Megazee. I'm also, you can't really see because of my hair, but I'm wearing little Megazee earrings on tonight. Um, uh, and that's uh, my adopted uh, Ojibwe clan um, uh, because I'm actually um, Plains Cree and Soto uh, and Metis. And we didn't necessarily have clans in the same way, although I hear whisperings that uh, when we're speaking about sort of re refusing patriarchy that, you know, there's like some, some oral histories there about clans we may or may not have had. Um, uh, but uh, I've been on this territory, um, which is sort of um, around uh, Nogo Jawana, and I was born in Toronto uh, my whole life. And so uh, over time, I developed relationships with folks here and, uh, and developed enough that, uh, that was honored with an adoption. So that's important, I think, to introduce myself because it tells you who I stand with on this territory. Um, and it tells you a little bit about who, who my family are. Um, my family is also folks who signed um, and relatives who signed Treaty 4, 6, and 8. Uh, so that gives you some geographical representation if you know where those treaties are, um, just around sort of uh, the plains and uh, the Battle River Cree uh, as well. Um, so the, the, I've sort of read two books on this list, um, Half Breed, uh, which is a seminal um, Métis work, um, and, uh, and uh, The Two-Spirit Journey uh, by Méni Chikabe. Um, both of them, I think, are uh, you know, speaking of split tooth, so just sort of like an aside, um, I am also still reading split tooth, but split tooth is one of those books that is so beautiful that I can't bear to finish it. <laughs> and similarly, um, and I know he's been on uh, this program before there's a, a fantasy 
trilogy by Daniel Heath Justice as well that is the same that I just I read it so slow because I don't want it to end because um, because as a work um, it's just so beautiful and, and something that when I was younger I really wished that I had more access to in terms of that kind of uh, literature and that kind of um, thinking and, and world building really um, so uh, I think within uh, both Half Read and and Mayne's book, um, you know, they are difficult reads. Um, they are uh, folks who have experienced a tremendous amount of violence um, uh, due to patriarchy and finding um, a place in the world, um, in a world that doesn't want them to exist. You know, and so for um, road allowance people, um, you know, for um, for folks who have that history, and, and that's a pretty hidden history, like a lot of people, I think, when they read um, Halfbreed uh, and Maria Campbell's work, uh, you know, that's maybe the first time that they've ever even heard of um, the fact uh, that, uh, that that was a thing, um, that that was a policy. And then it hopefully makes you dig into some of the history there around um, what created sort of road allowance people and why uh, Metis and, and, you know, and our bigger kinship structure of like Métis, Soto, Cree people were removed from our territories. Um, so that's a piece of it. And I remember um, I work at uh, Centennial College and I was part of um, a textbook uh, that we put together, like an open source textbook. And one of the chapters that I wrote was a two-spirit chapter and we had the privilege of interviewing Méni as part of that chapter. And so I remember, you know, part of that interview was her really defining uh, Two-Spirit, which was really cool to be in the room for because I had read the book, right? So I'm like, oh, this is really neat to see how that reflects. Um, but I remember Mani's words of just, um, that have always stuck with me uh, of, uh, of her grandmother, you know, telling, uh, telling her that, you know, this, this idea of being two-spirited, of not fitting into those very easy boxes and binaries, that, that it's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard life. And I think about, um, particularly for myself, and when I introduced myself, I, I told you that I was uh, a guayo, which is a Cree way of saying sort of um, one who kind of sits between those genders. You know, I, I can empathize with that idea that it is a hard, it is a hard life. Uh, and so I think it was really um, important for me, uh, you know, and I also like um, know many from sort of like uh, circles and sort of like in the two-spirit community in Toronto when she comes down um, to visit with us. So, you know, I think um, that as a representation is critically important and as a book was was really important, you know, and I think it's also recognizing too that, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of um, there aren't a lot of two-spirit elders around uh, or people who are talking about about that in that way. Um, and I think so, so I think Mania is such a treasure. And then I also think you know, that what many talks about in her book, because I know a little about, about, um, about her as a person, like those things also haven't ended, right? So it's not like the book ended and it's like a happy ending. It's also like, you know, Manny is a person who right now actually needs community support um, around medical stuff. And, and we're seeing calls that go out for that. So I think, you know, it's also, I think, I think about, it's this interesting thing of getting to read these amazing indigenous authors who are such pillars in our community, but then also recognizing that they're humans, um, you know, and they're, and they're people um, who, who also have experienced a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, refusal of patriarchy in lots of different ways. So that's what I'll say about those for now. Um, but uh, yeah, those are, those are very, very powerful books. Miigwech. I haven't read, I haven't read Mani's book yet. Uh, actually, I have to thank Nick for putting that one on the list. <laughs> Nick is here because Nick kept recommending books <laughs> for the list and it was great because they recommended really good books. They recommended uh, Manny Chacobee's book. 
and also uh, reproductive justice, uh, which is not written by an indigenous woman, um, but is written by somebody who spent a lot of time um, on the Pine Ridge Reservation, building relationships, initially going to, you know, you know, to be a helper, right? The way lots of um, church and, and um, academic, you know, university and college groups will go to be helpers. Uh, and she wound up forming relationships and going back again and again and again and using her position. And she actually, she, you know, she, she is connected to them now because her child is, um, the father of, of, of her child uh, is from Pine, is from Pine Ridge. So, you know, she even has that, that connection there now. So she wrote this really good book uh, called Reproductive Justice, which was the one that I read most recently. Um, but yeah, so um, Manny Chakabee's book is on my list. I'm really glad that you read that and can talk about it. So Nick, why don't you introduce yourself and talk about the books you read or partly read? Hey, um, my name's Nick. I use they, them pronouns, and uh, I'm a white Jewish settler on Coahuitaken, Karankawa, and Sana land, which is uh, Houston, Texas. And uh, I'm non-binary, transgender, and um, I use they, them pronouns, and I'm also bisexual and in a queer marriage. Um, so that's kind of where I, that's kind of where I come from and where I, um, you know, my position uh, in life. And um, a lot of the work I do is actually around abortion access, specifically for transgender people. Um, but just abortion access in general in Houston, because it can be kind of hard to access. Um, so that's kind of my connection to like refusing patriarchy. Um, I read Split Tooth and I read part of Reproductive Justice. And what was interesting about reading them together is that as Patty talked about reading books in conversation with one another, um, I kind of accidentally did that because I was just kind of switching back and forth uh, because I have ADHD and it actually ended up dovetailing really, really well um, because at the end of the split tooth near the end, you have um, the birth scene, um, which I thought was uh, one of a, just a really hauntingly beautifully written scene. And like that scene, like several scenes, but that scene in particular, like I just could see it, you know? And like, so her birthing experience, like she called the shots, right? Like she made a birthing experience for herself that was, you know, that was right for her and for her children. And, um, you know, it was kind of the spiritual traditional uh, you know, the spiritual traditional birthing experience she wanted. And she had both the emotional and familial support, but she also had like this supernatural support of like the Northern Lights and like the, the supernatural element there. And I contrasted that with, um, I, I read the chapter in Reproductive Justice about people talking about their birthing experiences. And you know, like people had different things to say, um, but uh, you know, one one kind of theme was um, deprivation um, with the Indian Health Service um, cutting costs and frankly cutting corners with what they weren't offering, like they weren't offering epidurals at their hospital. Um, and so they didn't have all of the options. and. 
um, the, uh, the very nearest hospital didn't even have the ability to do a C-section. Um, so you've got this, you've got this issue where like, um, people are being prevented from doing the birthing experience that would be absolutely best for them, um, by this government entity that, you know, this settler colonial government, um, that this kind of ongoing, um, you know, ongoing colonization and ongoing oppression. Um, so reading those two things in conversation with one another were, were it was actually really powerful. Um, and uh, now one thing in that chapter in reproductive justice that I want to say is that a lot of people like had some positive things to say about their birthing experience as well. It wasn't all negative. A lot of them referenced here, a lot of the people interviewed did feel like they got what they needed, but it's just the background of knowing, um, the background of knowing that uh, they are prevented from, from some things that would be really beneficial to them. Um, so, so reading those two things together was really cool. Um, going back to Split Tooth, um, so normally I don't mind marking up books, but I actually put um, sticky notes in this instead, um, which I do sticky notes on books that I mark up as well. But I put sticky notes on here because um, I want other people to read this and I don't want my thoughts to be on the page for them to like, oh, Nick thinks this is important. I'm gonna focus on this thing that they underline. I want people to approach this book for what it is on their own terms and kind of get what it from it what they need to. And I will probably reread this book. It was a very difficult read um, because of uh, some of the violence that the narrator goes through. Uh, and that is difficult to read, but it's just um, it's just such a beautiful book and I've read a lot of books in my life and I don't think I've ever read anything quite like this. So I would definitely, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of very difficult, tragic stuff in, in Split Tooth and yet just so poetically written that she just keeps pulling you along. It's, just, it, it's a lovely book. Uh, Tate, who is uh, the author of one of the essays in the book Fierce. And actually, I loved that essay so much because you go back to, to beginnings. And the woman actually that I met on Pine Ridge who took me to Wounded Knee, her name is T. Sanwin. So I, that's just kind of cool. <laughs> anyway, if you could introduce, talk a little bit about yourself and that essay and whatever else you want. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate being here. Hamid Takiapi, Chante Washte, you have not paid Jujo Introduce myself in Lakota. I am Mini Kanju Lakota from Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe in South Dakota, where I'm a citizen. Uh, but I live here in sunny Phoenix, where it's 100 something today. I've been outside. I work for a local tribal school district. So we were out and about today, last day of school. And, uh, but in my spare time, I consider myself a storyteller. Um, I should also note my pronouns are they, them. Uh, but uh, as we talk about some of this like disrupting of patriarchy, things like that, I, um, 
the they them pronouns have been around for a, a while, but I've been, um, as I learn more about my Lakota foundations, I've been reclaiming a lot of the feminine aspects that I kind of pushed aside for a long time. Um, I sort of like um, uh, trying to disrupt, right? Some of those um, cis heteronormative notions lots of folks have um, and, and sort of claiming the two spirits um, and then saying, you know, no femininity. Um, but uh, like I said, as I've been learning more about my Lakota foundations, um, I've been uh, sort of coming back to my, my caretaker role as Ina or mother and um, have really uh, loved that part of myself as I'm getting to know it better and better, um, especially as my own uh, child is um, um, coming to understand their own identity um, and recently came out as trans non-binary and how femininity sort of in, in sort of um, inspires, I guess, a lot of those decisions we've made in our family about you know, queerness and, um, and learning about two-spiritness. Um, so happy to be here. Uh, I, I apologize, I didn't read any of the books, but uh, I hope you mentioned my essay. So I, um, I, I've been a newspaper journalist for, uh, she's going on 17 years now, I guess. Gosh, I feel old, I have to keep adding numbers. Um, but uh, been more of a freelancer the last decade or so. And then in addition to that, been writing um, actual things in books, uh, which is really exciting. Um, and one of those was uh, the essay that uh, was, was in Fierce and that was um, 2018 published. And we won several awards. It was a pretty cool, very intersectional um, uh, collection of writings. Mine focused on Patesawi who is uh, known as a white buffalo calf woman. I think it's a story that's often told um, by even non-Lakota people. Um, I even met someone down here in the Phoenix Valley talking about how their Southwest traditions have um, a similar deity. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, but Patesawi, uh, uh, white buffalo calf woman, um, is somebody who, uh, um, I guess in, uh, in, inspired a lot of uh, any success I would have in my life, um, uh, whether it was storytelling or just like overcoming challenges um, was from sort of um, those foundations. Uh, she's known in Lakota uh, spirituality world more for the gifts she gave to like our ceremonies. So like um, the, the sacred pipe is a big one uh, that a lot of folks know her for. Um, also, uh, uh, like the um, tossing of the ball or, or puberty ceremonies, um, wiping of the tears, things like that were lessons that she gave us um, a couple generations ago. Um, but one thing that's often lost in those tales is sort of this innate matriarchal power that she's infused with. Uh, her first um, foray into human world really is essentially smiting down a, a warrior who is sent to sort of investigate who she is. She's naked and um, he has impure thoughts. That's depending on the storyteller, it gets more detailed than that. But essentially he's like, oh, naked woman, let's get it. And she's like, F you and totally just like smites him. He's nothing but bones and dirt and bugs. And again, people embellish, it gets fun. Um, and it was a story I heard when I was a, a, a troubled teen, if you will. I had just 
come out as uh, I, I, I didn't have language like non-binary or two-spirit. Uh, I just knew I liked girls in addition to boys. But if you like girls in Bismarck, North Dakota, you were a lesbian, capital L, and they put you into a religious camp to go hate yourself. Anyway, so I was in a group home and uh, they decided because we had a lot of native kids in this group home uh, that we were, uh, we should have native, um, native uh, culture uh, uh, outings, if you will. So they brought us to a slut lodge. None of us had really ever been to one and this story of Pateo Shawi was told. And that part was sort of brought out to the, to, as highlighted, right? So guys, make sure you respect women because they'll just kill you one day. <laughs> not the right message, but it was funny and it lasted with me. And it's sort of just always stuck with me throughout my life. So um, that sort of uh, feminist foundation, if you will, is what's sort of, uh, that's, 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 I brought that with me through, through my entire life. So. And Split Tooth is on my book list. So that's, I'm excited to hear more about it. Get all the uh, spoilers. I think it's going to be on everybody's book list. I see a couple, there are a few people in the chat commenting on that as well, but they're going to, they're going to have to add it to their list. It is, it is an extraordinary book. Finally, Robin, Dr. Robin. Um, thank you so much for having me back at the space, Patty. As you can see this time, I actually got dressed and didn't show up in my jammies like I did last time. So uh, I'm just so glad to be on this panel with all of you. Um, uh, where do I start? Um, I am Cree from Northern Alberta. My family is actually from Treaty 8 territory. So Sean, as soon as you said that, I knew where we're going. I have connection in uh, a few different communities in that territory. Um, I am also connected through my children to the Six Nations of the Grand River. So um, that is also a very important part of our family. Um, I am by day an associate professor in the Center for Women and Gender Studies at Brock, but I recently was appointed our acting vice provost of Indigenous engagement. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, I, I'm so glad to be talking about this. And Patty, I hope you don't mind. I mean, I've read so many of the books that we talked about or we're talking about, and you know, I spent a lot of time with. Um, the beginning and the end of rape by Sarah Deer, like, and I've worked with Sarah and I could talk about that, but I've been, when I came to this today, I was thinking about um, what it's like to refuse patriarchy and what the consequences look like for people, because I've been experiencing that a lot lately. Um, I wrote an article last April where I um, took a pretty big stand and maybe talked about white male terrorism and ended up having my life threatened, having my kid's life threatened, um, having my job threatened, you name it. And it's come back now to haunt me as the vice provost. And uh, I recently have uh, been targeted by Jonathan Kaye for <laughs> challenging colonial patriarchy. So I've been thinking a lot about that and what it takes and, you know, at an individual level, because, you know, I've done this, I've been an activist longer than I've been an academic. I started working on violence against Indigenous women and girls uh, like 20 plus years ago now, because I myself am a survivor of the violence. I was sexually exploited um, in my late teens in Vancouver. Um, and so I've been fighting this a long time on the ground, first of all, and now I'm in this weird academic institutional setting where there's these big structural changes and I'm facing off like I, I, this is like, it just feels like a game, a constant game. And so when I was thinking about refusing patriarchy tonight, I was thinking about the consequences of that, which I think show up in the books. Like when I think about Maria Campbell and I think about 
her refusals of patriarchy at times and, and the consequences that comes with, it's, you know, that's kind of what I've been thinking about a lot lately. And, and how do we, how do we resist that? And how do we do that together um, so that we're not leaving people out by themselves to fight this horrible system that really does bite back in a big way. Like I, you know, and just vicious and cruel and through technology and threatening every aspect of your life. Like I never imagined that would ever happen to me. And so I've been thinking about that a lot and how this connects and how brave we have to be as people to stand, take a stand. And, uh, you know, for me, it's all about my Cree teachings, which actually say you have to, right? That if you see something that's wrong and it's going to affect not only your children, but everyone's children and, and is going to affect us in a bad way, you have to take a stand. And so I'm always stuck in this moment going, I have to take the stand, but also, you know, I'm going to get death threats. I'm going to be at a security bubble. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about and, and what that means for disrupting all these systems of oppression, because I just see so much how this keeps us all apart right and how we don't link these things together and don't make those connections and then don't fight together and so that's that's where my head is tonight and thinking about the topic and so I think I'll stop there because I'm really eager to hear what other people have to say thank you yeah and it would be briefly shared a troll um on on Twitter but he did not target me the way he the way he targeted I hope it has a good resolution because it really when you take a stand, you know, like you had said, it kind of reverberates through all of these butts in terms of, you know, sticking up for yourself and, and standing. There, there's a price to pay. There's a price. And sometimes that price lands on, lands on other people, lands on our children, it lands on other relatives, it lands on partners. You, you know, um, I was just thinking, you know, there's, you know, the, the three quotes that I pulled up, um, from Sarah Deer as I was looking for quotes coming up where she talks about rape in the lives of Native women is not an epidemic of recent mysterious origin. It's a fundamental result of colonialism, a history of violence reaching back centuries. She says, rape is a more fundamental threat to self-determination of tribal nations than the drawbacks federal, uh, than, than the drawbacks federal reform could ever be. You know, they trespass her body like they trespass this land. It's, uh, she's quoting Ryan Redcorn in that. And, you know, sexual violence and the violence that we are threatened with, because even when we're not, you know, deliver, you, you know, kind of overtly experiencing that transgression that, yes, all women, you know, and, and you know, also, you know, also two-spirited non-binary people are also targeted in, in much the same way. The threat of that is all that can be enough, right? We don't need to actually physically experience it. The threats that land in our email boxes, that land in our Twitter DMs, you know, it's a very convenient way to threaten. And, you know, so it was just, I, I found her book really, really extraordinary. So, um, what I know we've, we've kind of talked about the books that we've read, but now that we've kind of heard what everybody has said, is there anything in the, you know, in the book that you read or in what you've heard that is striking you as, you know, in, in maybe a different way or that kind of surprised you something that was unexpected in, in the book that you read or what your, or, you know, the essay you wrote as you approached your essay and you were thinking it would go one way, you know, was there something that surprised you in what you read or what you, uh, we'll start with Sean. 
We're just going to go clockwise around the new screen now that I've adjusted the size of my screen and rearranged you all. Um, I don't think there was any, like, it was neat to see Manny's story. I don't know that there was anything that surprised me in it. Um, I think, um, the, I think, um, the tenderness, I think of, of, of her grandmother, I think did. Um, and I think in particular, uh, like in the context of the story, um, and, and her life, her grandmother was a person who accepted her. Uh, and I will say as a two-spirit person, um, you know, um, that was actually quite heartwarming because a lot of times, um, some of our most like intimate rejections are from family members. Uh, and this was a, a grandmother and a, and a knowledge keeper who, you know, just accepted Mani for, for who she was and, and how she was, and then try to, um, explain to her sort of like what, what life was going to be like and, and to prepare her. Um, and so, um, you know, I think, um, so much of the rhetoric of traditional people is around a gender binary. So much of that rhetoric is around very cis normative and, and, you know, mononormative, um, pieces. So, uh, you know, I think, um, something that, that I really, admire about Mani, and I think it goes into this sort of refusing patriarchy is just that, uh, that, uh, she's a human who just lives her life and kind of refuses to, to, to do what other people say. And so carries on in the relationships that, that she wants and has a relationship with a variety of people and is like very clear about, um, and frank about what that looks like and, and sort of those relationships. Um, so I think that, uh, that was a thing that, that, um, that surprised me. And I think it reminded me, um, you know, uh, because I think Nani is also someone who grew up with, with folks who were quite isolated in the bush. So it reminds me of a little bit like how, you know, I think of folks in my own, own family, like I have an ancestor, um, whose name, uh, was a Gimokwe, which translates basically, she was a, a, like a chief <laughs> and she was a self-appointed chief. So she's just like, I'm going to be a leader now. And that's what she did. And, and, uh, her sons, uh, ended up being trading chiefs and, um, you know, and I, I think there's this interesting, um, sort of connection that I, I can talk about a little bit later to other other things that I'm thinking about. But I think um, that notion of, of having relatives that accept you of having a place, um, you know, I think particularly for a two-spirit narrative that that was not expected because so many of the narratives that we have around two-spirit identities, and I can think of other, you know, even um, for lack of a better term, like uh, younger, you know, two-spirit authors that a, a theme often tends to be like rejection and you have to create your own family and, you know, no one on the reserve is going to accept you, like no one in the community is going to accept you. And so, you know, I think uh, it is actually why I think for those of us who are like older, not that I'm old, but older two-spirit people, why we have to radically accept youth, because you can see that really, and I, I don't think this is overestimate, like over stating the point, you know, I think Manny's grandmother like really saved her life. And I think that's the role that we have as a responsibility for, for folks who are, you know, non-binary and gender non-conforming. And, um, you know, as I said earlier, Iaguayo is how I, I identify, um, because really like when we can play that role in someone's life, like it, it really is saving them. And so, um, that's, I think something that surprised me. Gretch. Angela, I know you didn't read one of the books on the list, but you read a book, you know, that speaks to you in terms of, of relationships and, and safety. And I, I, as you were talking, Sean, I was thinking about something that came up 
in the reproductive justice book where she's talking about, I think it was in that book. I don't know, I'm getting things mixed up. Because um, we often talk about cultural competency and, and it being contrasted with cultural safety and, and you know, a place where we can exist safely as opposed to around the experts that are competent and, and how to deal with us. And I, as you were talking, that was kind of what I was thinking about creating these places of safety where we can be. And Angela, you've talked a little bit about that with, with your son trying to create this place of safety. So what, what surprises you or tugs at you about, uh, about the book that you read? Um, just to, I didn't say much about myself in the beginning, so I'm just going to briefly do that, that um, um, I grew up in Ontario, Belleville, Ontario, and uh, was adopted into a white family with four other black kids, um, my twin brother being one, and uh, we were a product of um, being taken from our mother, who was a non-land Im immigrant, and, and were part of a social experiment that was happening in uh, Toronto, particularly in the 1960s um, that carried over into the early 70s. I'm now here in Vancouver, have been here for 22 years and have been, had the pleasure of raising a beautiful boy who, um, who, who I see parallels in terms of our own struggle and isolation. Um, so um, that has brought me to doing, I started out in human resources and now moving through, did studied addiction counseling and have decided I just want to write. So I think writing is an act of um, refusing the patriarchy. I, I really believe that. And I think that this, and I think artists in general um, and activism is that. And so this book speaks to me on that level. It, it, it surprised me in terms of um, the idea of writing as activism, because that's how I sort of, I'm not, I'm not necessarily somebody that goes out and, and um, protests. Um, but I do, I think that what we're doing today, I think that, you know, speaking on in podcasts and, and openly using the words white supremacy <laughs> is um, an act of refusing the patriarchy. So the title at first, it, that spoke to me when it was given to me, but really that in, it's about connecting with um, my people that I'm not necessarily connected to who are fighting some of the same things, even though they're in the States, we have been experiencing these things here too, right? There's a collectiveness around, um, around trauma and lack of safety, but also resiliency. So it was just really great to see the resiliency of, of black folks in this book doing what they, what they are inspired to do to support all other and not just black folks. So that, I think that's, surprised me very much of the book that it's not it's all facing it's all emotional facing and, and I, I appreciate that because it brings that up for me and it allows me to be it's allowed me to be more real about myself and my experience and um, I think that's why I keep going back to it. Well, what's the name of the book again? It's called How We Fight White Supremacy. I'm just going to put it into the chat so that people can get it. How we fight white supremacy. Yeah. And so there's um, the author, the, the people that put it together, um, Akiba Solomon and uh, Kenria Rankin. Well, you could send that to Janessa and she can get the authors and all that information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I briefly forgot that that's why we have her here. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nick, what surprised you about the books that you read? So um, I went into Split Tooth thinking that it was like a straightforward like memoir and it was not. Um, it was really different from what I was expecting as far as like I wasn't really expecting like the the supernatural element to it. I'm not sure if supernatural is even the right term um, but like kind of the um, otherworldly sort of like like communicating on you know different planes with different um you know with with different aspects of the land and different you know aspects of the environment and um so I I definitely wasn't expecting that and I read some articles about it to try to like understand a little bit more and um people uh compared it to uh Daniel Heath Justice's Wonder Works um from uh, why indigenous literatures matter, the concept of wonder work that kind of defies categorization in like a colonial sense. And that truly like, I, I read that and I was like, oh, that really explains a lot to me as far as like, just, it was so completely different from anything I had read before. Um, I guess I, I don't, I'm hesitant to say exactly what, uh, what surprised me because um, I'm kind of hesitant to spoil the book. I think part of the journey of the book is being surprised by what happens. Um, but I was surprised by the way that, um, the way that she approached motherhood and her motherhood journey that was all very surprising to me and I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. I think um, Tanya's comfort with the unseen and just how that was just such a, just another character in the book. Like there wasn't, yeah. And, and I find that um, with some, I think I'm, I'm finding that more with more native authors now um, that it's not approached as this kind of weird spooky thing. It's just another character and, you know, it's, it's just, it's just there, but I think Tanya weaves it in, in a really beautiful way. And it maybe opens the door for more authors to be able to do that in, in their own writing as well. It's, I'm going to have to go back and read. It's been a while since it's been a while since I read it. I've had a couple of people had mentioned to me that they were planning on, on reading it. And, and I think, you know, to both of you is like, okay, it's really raw. Have something. <laughs> Of something you enjoy doing planned around at the same time. I, do, I remember I remember it being really awesome. Uh, Tate, yeah, in your essay, what what surprised you as you as you wrote that? Because we always have these ideas about the things that we're gonna write. I'm in the midst of something myself, and really um, it's kind of the book I picked, but not there's a lot that yeah. <laughs> so. well, and that like I mentioned that. Fierce came out in 2018 and since then I've been writing well I finished uh my first full length um Thunder Thighs and Trickster Vibes storied advice from your two-spirit auntie um and I finished that and it was supposed to come out November 2020 uh the publisher got coveted <laughs> and um it, it just got pushed back and to the point where though so I finished it like last February 
and had all my stuff in there and, it, and, it, and I, I'm you know was in love with it it's a you know baby you push it out uh. um but uh COVID happened <laughs> and then you know uh Black Lives Matter uh I mean, which had been happening but I mean just really um here in Phoenix uh, we, we got really into it um mascots had a whole different trajectory <laughs> um and and then you know uh our, my own family having some issues so like several chapters in there were just like completely destroyed <laughs> and had to be like reworked and um and I shouldn't say destroyed I think um you know evolved if you will which you know is sort of life right we're sort of always in transition and uh the book was is just sort of more on that so um yeah that that's been uh, rough so with fierce though uh so I was asked to write on anything related to like indigenous feminisms they're like pick a pick somebody you would you would you would claim as you know your hero who folks don't know about so I was like well we and of course the first thing was no a real person <laughs> I was like well <laughs> they were <laughs> we have a pipe for proof of well, you know, the one she gave us um and so that was that was kind of the first fight was like she was real <laughs> any questions um you know and so uh, that that was interesting um and you know, like we, we need citations. You know, how many white people have seen Patesawi? Like, well, none. But I have citations from several elders across generations. Um, but the the biggest one was um, uh, to me was the pushback I received from editors on the sections where I wrote about the harms inherent within white feminism, which is of course white supremacy in action in so many ways. And there was just a lot of like, whoa, 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 whoa. We gave you Patesawi, you know, parentheses, fake. But, um, you know, you were supposed to just talk about indigenous feminism. We didn't want you to, you know, beat us all up. You know, I am a feminist and I am not, I'm white and I'm okay. Um, and it became this sort of uh, micro study of like, well, what I'm talking about is actually what you're showcasing here in your editorial process. And so, um, Thankfully, we had a really great publisher who always had my back and uh, we, we were able to push through all my sections without any uh, editorializing there or censoring. But it, but it took a long time uh, to, to have, um, you know, th these nice white ladies, nice white liberal ladies, um, uh, okay, you know, the discussion of things like, uh, you know, the, the notion that um, being outside or being a caregiver, you know, these things that we hold sacred within like our ancestral stories and relationship with things like land or, you know, child rearing or, um, I mean, just ideas and concepts of, of, of uh, gender expansiveness and how much those often fly in the face of, of white feminism of, you know, I don't want to be home. I want to, <laughs> I want half a share in the, in the, in the plantation. Right. Like, I mean, that's white feminism in a nutshell is, is that capitalist drive to um, own, if you will. And that's just not obvious. I mean, if, I'm preaching to the choir here. But um, so so my 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 essay um, didn't I wouldn't say it went super in depth into that stuff, but it was um, interesting to have the back the back conversations with the editors on uh, on how they were fitting into that model. And so then when we had like the author readings and things like that, um, that conversation came up quite a bit just in terms of, well, how does indigenous feminism, um, you know, you know, isn't that an oxymoron, if you will? And 
no, I don't think it is. And I mean, I think maybe some people might start out with it being sort of like, I'm an indigenous person and I'm a feminist and I'm gonna, I don't know, uh, advocate for, you know, corporations to hire more women and whatever, you know, and, and, and that's a bad example, but essentially like where we don't look at it as intersectional, um, a la Kimberly Crenshaw and um, how that can still harm sort of these uh, movements that we've started with things like, oh, like the conversations, for instance, with missing and murdered indigenous women, like that's been really um, evolving to talk about like um, missing and murdered indigenous relatives uh, and how we're, you know, we're just, we keep trying, right? And I think that's sort of the point. And again, when I go back to say Patesawi and a lot of those teachings, it's always about change. It's always about how things are, are seasonal and evolutionary, right? I mean, even our language. <laughs> uh, when I was a reporter, I did a story from um, uh, a Blackfoot uh, scientist who was working on a Mars mission and had his elder mother who was uh, fluent in Blackfoot, Blackfoot um, create a dictionary of NASA terms. And it was really cool because she was like, of course we would have words for these. Like, you know, people are like, that's not traditional. <laughs> um, you know, and we sort of get stuck in these, like, it has to be this way. Um, and so anyway, going back to the Patisa, we teachings of just, you know, allow yourself to evolve and it, it, it happens. So that essay definitely, um, I think was a starting point to sort of my even own evolution of what it is to be indigenous feminism, uh, what, what that represents and how that changes and should change, so. Thank you. Yeah, that's, um, I'm, I read uh, Hood Feminism recently and she talks about one of the quotes from her was uh, for women of color, the expectation is that we prior to prioritize gender over race that retreat the patriarchy is something that gives all men the same power and that leaves us feeling very isolated because white feminism is arguably the patriarchy. You know, like you said, it's the, it's the drive to own. It's the, you know, 500 CEOs control all the world's wealth. Well, half of those CEOs should be women. No, that's not, <laughs> that's not, what, that's not what's gonna save the world. That's not the kind of feminism that we need that's not the kind of things you know you know that's not you, you know that that that's that's not the uh, redemption we're looking for uh dr robin what um in your research in your books because i think you said you've read you've read most of these and you've also done your own writing what what surprised you what what did you go into something expecting and then what gift did you get from it uh -huh. <laughs> I don't think, I don't ever know, like as a writer, I don't think ever, anything ever turns out the way I want, but it turns out the way it should be. Although I really am glad, Tate, that you raised this because um, I just went through this horrible thing with a journal article about decolonizing Me Too, where I took on white feminism in Canada. And uh, after two years of negotiating with the journal, I finally pulled the article because I'm not willing to go there. And that's what I think too. I'm gonna to share that same perspective. I'm always surprised by the backlash, even though I know it's coming. Like every time I'm like, it's gonna be there. Like you say anything about white folks, it's gonna come back at you. Um, but um, 
I'm always surprised. I'm and how virulent it is and how forceful it is and how, you know, vicious sometimes it can be. Um, and that's always an interesting struggle when you're writing something like this, especially because I tend not to stray away from I don't sugarcoat things. I don't have interest in that. You know, I've been really influenced by um, I've worked with a lot of families of survivors who have said, you know, we don't want you to exploit our story, but we also don't think people deserve like a sugar-coated version of what colonial violence is uh, because we all have to live with it. So, so, so should everybody else. And I find the resistance is stunning. Editors, um, publishers, uh, audience, all of that, students, faculty, you name it, uh, is constant. And it actually led me back to thinking about revisiting uh, Half-Breed. Because I don't know about all of you, but Half-Breed was one of those first books I read. In fact, I think I actually have a first edition. And then to come back and realize, you know, it took what, you know, many years for them to actually release the version that was supposed to happen. And it had me thinking about the problematics of writing, especially for marginalized scholars. Like, you know, the whole reason Maria Campbell is forced into the genre of, um, autobiography is because at the time publishers wouldn't print anything else. They directed all Indigenous peoples towards that category. In fact, that's one of the things that Emma LaRock has written quite a bit about, right? We're not good enough to write academic books. We're not good enough to write even nonfiction. We're stuck in this category of autobiography, which makes some sense as Indigenous peoples because we're storytellers. But then what are the limits of that? So here's Marie Campbell telling this incredible story and then ends up silenced for so long. And it's just like, you know, I, that's the kind of the challenge of this whole thing is what are the limits of what can be said and what can't be said? And who gets to decide that? And then what are the punishments for the people who break those boundaries of what can and cannot be said? And, you know, it, that's, I think that's really interesting. And it really, revisiting Half-Read made me think about that, how powerful that book was, but how it was also really for so long an incredible act of violence in many ways, because again, Indigenous women were silenced. I just think that's so profound and, and it's still happening. I mean, there's two examples in this conversation right now of folks who are experiencing that, and I'm sure many, many more. So it makes me think about, you know, what is the world still going like what are we facing you know how are our words to get to audiences if we're being surveilled and silenced and suppressed i think that's you know i'd hoped by the time i was 43 that the world might have changed <laughs> maybe that's hopeful robin who is an optimist but i feel like we're still fighting this and it's not changing and i shouldn't be surprised and yet it still is this kind of violent assault again uh and just a constant ache i think in terms of you know where are we going and and the manifestations and how this switches and uh there's just so much there so that i think is what where i headed with this <laughs> and i think you're referring to her story of, of sexual assault by the rcmp officer correct because that was because uh, she had because she had in her story in, in her book originally the editors pulled it out and then when she revisited it for the for the 25th I think it's the 25th anniversary or like the, the most recent edition that came out uh, she's like hey hey this is missing something this wasn't this was supposed to be in there and so she insisted to go back in 
Um, and that's a, that's the, the version that I had. Um, but yeah, the thing, because let's see, it's like who controls the story, even when there are stories, you know, and even beyond editors, like the power of the mob, you know, to, to force our employers to control us. You know, for a long time, I worked in child welfare and there were a lot of things that I couldn't talk about. Um, not so much because it would, you know, it was specific to certain clients. And, you know, I obviously know better than tell their stories, you know, but because it, but most of the time I went to HR, it was because something I had said on social media was reflecting badly on the organization. And that's a way of silencing people. You can't talk about these things because we have this image, you know, where, you know, and, you know, and all organizations operate that way. They have this image and, you know, thinking of Nora Loretto who got badly targeted, you know, by white supremacists and is basically unhirable as a journalist in Canada. Um, and yet she's done some extraordinary research on the COVID numbers and where the outbreaks and now journalists are using her numbers and they're making money off of it, but she's not, she's still silent. In Canada, in the U.S., you get some stuff, but she's a Canadian journalist and all about Canadian politics. So, all these different ways that we're controlled in terms of what we can say, and even like I can have my independent media, you know, my you know my little podcast, you know, my book club, these things that you know that I do and the things that I do with Carrie, but our reach is controlled, right? You know, whether it's on social media or you know wherever, there's always algorithms controlling reach, and those things are. We can refuse patriarchy all day long, but they still own access to everything. <laughs> so when we think about our communities, whether there are communities, you know, as indigenous peoples, as, you know, the places where we work, our chosen communities, what do we want from them? What do we want from them that will help us, you know, to pick up on that idea of cultural safety and, and the ways in which we are silenced? What do we want from our communities? Um, and maybe I'll start with Nick. Um, I think, um, I honestly think the most important thing um, in a community is, uh, I think space to allow people to, to grow and be themselves and also a space where we can hold each other accountable while still doing so in a nurturing way. Um, like I think uh, restorative and transformative justice movements are really important when we're talking about community building um, because I see a lot of really um, hurt, traumatized people um, hurting each other because you know somebody does something wrong and it triggers somebody's fight or flight response. And, you know, I think we need to allow, you know, allow ourselves space to grow and um, space to hold each other accountable to, you know, keep each other, to keep each other safe or as safe as we can. So, you know, holding people accountable for messing up, but also doing so in a nurturing way so that people can grow back together. Oh, Angela, what do, you, what do you need from your community? I certainly like what um, Nick had to say about space because I, I'm having this challenge around inclusion. Um, it seems to be a part of the you know, diversity, equity, inclusion stuff. And I hear it all the time in my workplace and it's driving me insane. Um, so 
I like the idea of space. Um, thank you, Nick. I think that, you know, there has to be, um, I think that we, we can be, I find people of color in general very forgiving. I think we have to be as part of our spirit, our spirit, um, Indigenous, Black. Um, I, I just, that is my experience because of all the resiliency. And I think that anybody has been in a place of other. We naturally, I, this is my belief, I don't know, but we naturally have a, just a, a, an openness to the mistakes of other because we have been suppressed and oppressed for so long. So if we are given a place of, of space to be who we are, there is that opportunity for transformation. Um, the problem is that a, a system doesn't want to give up that space. It's too threatening for them. And so what I, what I would ask is along with space is, um, is the opportunity for people just to be vulnerable, just to say, you know what, I fucked Oh, pardon my language, I do that. Um, so how do we work this out so that um, I'm not keep I'm not continuing to do this and keep continuing to um, activate your nervous system? Um, I know that I have this in me. I know you know whatever it is I know, but let's let's have the space, the openness to to both be vulnerable in that. I, I think transform and transformation can happen in that space, and I, I that's what I would like to see in all places. Okay, that um, I read one of the books that I've read recently. We do this till we free us by Miriam Kaba, and one and she's an abolitionist. And one of the things that she talks about is, is getting away from this consequence mindset because of we're thinking about being account. If we're all, when we think about being accountable, if there's always consequences and punishment, nobody's going to admit to doing anything because why would I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to deflect as long as possible because I'm worried about losing my job, losing my friend, losing access to something, you know, losing followers, you know, I'm, I'm worried about punishment. But if we're thinking about real accountability, which is what rebuilds relationships, that's when we can move forward. That's when people are free to admit things and to acknowledge that they screwed up um, because we also, we, we we make we make we make mistakes uh tate what do you what do you want or need from your community i i think the biggest thing that came to mind was uh people need to listen and that includes myself um we mentioned earlier uh, uh like young people um you know they they have so much to say um and and beyond just like you know our TikTok social media stuff, um, I think I think a lot of magic happens when we start letting them lead with these new ideas. And as a forty something, I, I would think I'm okay to say you know youngins have have something to say. Um, uh, but that includes you know folks that are often pushed aside um, and you know, two spirits, um, uh, elderly things like that. But um, I, I like this idea of space and maybe want to incorporate that into. Uh, you know, the, the idea of land back and how, uh, you know, be unapologetic about the demanding of, of our indigenous lands back and what, it, and however that looks, um, uh, there's been a lot of really successful initiatives to uh, reclaim land. A lot of it has to deal with, uh, you know, we're in a capitalistic society. So there's a lot of exchange of, of, of money for that land, but it's happening. And uh, I just want to see it happen a lot more. 
um, and when 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 that land back happens, right? When 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 it's returned to uh, indigenous caretaking, uh, because I don't I think you know much like we talked about with white feminism and ownership, um, you know this this concept of you know well what are you gonna do with the land when we give it back to you and do you, how does that look when I when you say give me the land back like it's pretty simple <laughs> I think, um, but there's this element of relationship that goes into our ideas of land back that uh lead to things like language reclamation right like when we start recognizing land as a as a relative um that language starts coming back to us and i'm thinking of someone like um dr robin wall kimmer and braiding sweetgrass and how um just you know the, the land has a language to it and um uh listening to that is there's often a lot of growth that happens um and then, um, you know, so so reclaiming that language, land, uh, and and, and getting, getting the language back leads us to, um, you know, other relatives, whether that's a, you know, uh, non-human relatives or you know, your family too. Um, I, I think there's a lot of really great things that uh, are possible when we encompass, you know, the the, the land with with our um, community stop there because I'm going to wax romantic now. And my name means the wind. Hey, just kidding. <laughs> Land back though. Yes. Because if we're going to have space, we need space. And you know, to have safe relationships includes the land. And I just finished. So yeah, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Yes. But I just finished a really extraordinary book by Mary Dorsted. She's a Norwegian um, Hebrew scholar. And she wrote a book about um, the Hebrew, the, the old, you know, what, what Christians will call the Old Testament, about how the whole, the world is alive, you know, about how, you, you know, just kind of the life and, and the agency of the land, the agency of the trees and, and all of that. And, and just, you know, kind of this completely other worldview that um, has really been stripped out of it. And, and it was just, it was just an, an extraordinary, it was really beautiful. And um I think you know you know Nick uh, mentioned that uh, that they were Jewish and that there's a lot of I don't know tribal thinking I don't know maybe that's not the right word but but you know in terms in terms of talking about um you, you know with some other Jewish people on Twitter that we have a lot in common in the way we do connect with land which is not to go all Zionist on you because freedom for Palestine means freedom for everybody right? Just like land back for us does not mean bouncing everybody back to Europe with the exception of maybe a couple I can think of. Uh, but for the most part, it means about sharing the land in a good way, living together in a good way. If the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabeg live together in a good way, anybody can live together. <laughs> All I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so Dr. Robin, you have a lot of things you need from your community. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you for that. Um, I, I think I, you know, the best way for me to approach this actually is to think about violence, because that's what I think about every single day of my life. And in that regard, I need accountability. Um, and let me let me unpack that for a minute. Um, you know, I still can't believe, you know, when I'm thinking about Sarah Deer's work, I'm thinking about what Marie Campbell goes through. I want people to believe survivors. I don't want to have to fight anymore to convince people that I've experienced violence. 
enough, like enough. And then I want people to hear that and I want them to be accountable. I don't want my community defending or protecting abusers, especially well-known abusers. That is not acceptable. And it just perpetuates everything we're fighting against. It perpetuates patriarchy. It perpetuates colonialism, all of it. And I just, you know, when I'm looking at the, the work we do around violence and that we still have to convince people every single day that we're being raped, that we're being um, trafficked, that we're being murdered, that all of these things are happening and they're still happening at this huge level. And then our communities are like, no, yeah, no, this is just, you know, somebody who made a really bad mistake. Okay but I still want you to be countable. And here's the thing though, I'm with Patty. I am not, you know, this is not, the response is not the carceral system, like at all, not even a little bit. You know, I really want us to think of new ways um, because it is still true at the end of the day that, um, you know, some of our indigenous community who are inflicting violence on other people are is because of this history of colonial violence and because of the way it's internalized and the way it's manifested and how, you know, violence at the end of the day gives us power. And when you're disempowered, that sometimes can feel like power, right? And and I, I struggle with that. And, you know, we're dealing with all kinds of problems. So we need something other than prison to be the answer to this. We need accountability and we need to ensure that our communities are safe, but there has to be another solution other than locking somebody up and that's where you know I think we need to really think seriously about how do we respond as a community to these situations how can we respond in a good way that first of all always centers the survivors like if you are not sending this centering the survivors in your response you are inflicting even more harm so it has to be centered there. And then you have to work and think about this. And we have to do this in a really good way. And, and here's the thing, I think as indigenous groups, I'm just gonna throw that out there, that you know, given our hundred years of justice in our own systems, we might have some ideas about how that might work, right? You know, I'm thinking about Cree natural law and how that might work. You know, we do have to, I'm, I agree with Sean, I think, you know, I, I can only speak for Cree interpretation of things, but I think we have to do a better job of just disrupting the uh, gender binary within some of the way Cree teachings are taught. You know, we're limited to male and female, and yet we know in Cree language, there's at least six or seven different gender identities. And that's just the ones we know of, right? So I think we need to fight against that a little bit too. But I think, you know, this, the carceral system is not the answer is where I was going with that. Um, and that we really need to think about what else could this look like, but I do still want accountability and I do still want survivors to be safe. And I do want other members of the community to be safe and not have people protecting someone who's known, you know, a known predator, just like enough, enough. Aren't our lives worth more than that? That's, I just, I can't get over that. So I'm going to stop there. <laughs> and that's a frequent thing that people bring up um, in terms of, of countering abolitionist arguments. Is, well, what about all the rapists? What are you going to do with them? And it's like, well, they're not in jail now anyway. They're walking around the streets now anyway, because, you know, you know, if you've got this many, sorry, I try to keep it on the screen, you've got this many sexual assaults happening. You've got this many actually being reported, and then you got this many who actually go to jail, and then they're only out in two years less a day. So really, 95% of the sexual predators are already out on the street, 
with absolutely no incentive to admit they have a problem. You know, so if we find another way of dealing with things, a way that centers the victim, that believes the victim, like my God, how many, how, how many things would adults would be saved if we listened to teenage girls when they told us that somebody was dangerous? If we listened to young men when they told us somebody was dangerous? How many future things could, oh, anyway, that's a whole other episode. John, what do you need from your community? Um, so I think I was thinking about, um, I think firstly, um, the ability to be a whole and complete person. Uh, and that's in, with its messiness, um, but also responsibility to kin, right? So the idea is that our, especially for, for Korean and Ashtabek folks, uh, kinship is our, our foundational thing. So the first question we ask is where are you from, which is not where are you physically from, it's who are your relations, who are your relatives, right? Um, because, you know, it, like in some ways we are literally all related because, you know, we have migration stories and may have come from, from similar places, um, but we're always trying to find family and always trying to find, you know, um, who, who we fit in with and how. Um, I think that um, that idea of being a whole and complete person also comes back to that perpetual fear of violence and rejection, which is its own kind of, which is its own kind of violence. And I think especially as like, for me as a disabled, like mixed person who doesn't ascribe to a gender binary, there is a constant worry about how much I can show up in the various spaces I come into, right? So, you know, the mental thing is, okay, is this a place I can put lipstick on? Is this a place I could wear a ribbon skirt to? Like, you know, or maybe I'm feeling like I want to wear my ribbon vest today, right? Like it, that idea of being binary, um, of fighting that binary is very confusing for folks. Um, because again, those are not necessarily teachings that have been maintained in the same way. Um, and I think a lot about how the land, right? When we talk about the land, the land doesn't reject us, right? When you go and sit with creation, creation doesn't go, oh, I'm sorry, you don't fit into my binary notions of, of and colonial notions of gender, go away. Like the sun shines on all of us, you know, the grass and the waters embrace us. Like these are, these are foundational things that we all have the right to, to go and sit with creation. Um, and, and, you know, and, and capitalism is about separating us from that, right? Like I spend, you know, like a lot of employed people, I spend all my day on a friggin' Zoom you know, call right now with the sun just outside my window that I can see, um, you know, and so I also think about how um, when we talk about that land back notion that we have to get out of these categories that the government has put us in and created on, on our behalf that separate us, right? So, you know, whether we're talking about, um, you know, status Indians, whether we're talking about Métis or Inuit in these like artificial categories that aren't really, you know, that don't exist because, um, ultimately, we were all folks who had relationships with each other and like various communities where, you know, all three of those people and kinds of people might have existed in one place. And how do you tell them apart, right? Language, culture, like all of these things, I think for a really long time um, were things that we managed and we had control over. And then the government has decided for, you know, uh, since the 1870s, like how that works for us and that hasn't worked for us. So um, I think that could also be a whole topic in and of itself. Um, I think also um, allowances for other kinds of relationship structures. So, you know, there's a history in my family that's very confusing because so many of my ancestors had multiple partners and trying to map out whose kids are who and who is cousins and that kind of stuff is very difficult. Um, partially because we were so far in the West that the church didn't get us for a while. So we weren't having church marriages until actually probably pretty close to like the early 1900s kind of time. So then before then, you know, there are relationship structures of all sort and, and I myself am 
uh, ascribed to a non-monogamous relationship kind of structure. Um, Kim Talbert talks a lot about this idea of critical polyamory. And, and so there's alternative relationship structures that we could look into. And I would appreciate if those were like recognized and valued in our communities, as opposed to, again, replicating these very colonial uh, structures. And then I think the other piece I was thinking of um, that Angel had, had said about writing is activism. Like I like to write queer, smutty, erotic poetry. And that's one of the ways that I personally challenge patriarchy and I challenge notions around gender. And I, you know, I literally have a poem um, <laughs> that's in my hallway right now that's that's framed because it was part of an art thing uh, that is about, you know, um, being like a seahorse and getting pegged, right? So like, this is like, you know, I like that phrase, like peg the patriarchy, right? Like there's this whole idea of this work can be sort of like trans transgressive, but not really um, because, you know, you can, you can um, pull with those pieces. And I think, again, it's about taking up space um, because patriarchy controls who we love and for Indigenous people, how we love and, and who we should be. And we're storytellers, right? So I think about the truce um, that, uh, that Maria talks about, that Tanya talks about, that Mani talks about, like, you know, that point of like, um, I always love the, the notion of like being careful what you ask for in our communities because someone asked them, I want you to tell your story. And that's what they got. They got a full unfiltered, like, this is the story, right? And so, uh, you know, the question I have as a senior leader in an institution, because um, I think much like Robin, I, I sort of have that weird um, sort of senior leadership Indigenous role doing Indigenization work. I'm also like, how much can I show up in that space? Like, how much do I talk about my smutty poetry side, right? Um, and who can I talk about that to without discrediting myself um, as, as being taken seriously as, say, an academic or, or someone who's also talking about these things. And so all of those pieces, I think, are things that I kind of sit with around um, around trying to understand what I what I want from my community. And I yeah, there's some there's some good. I don't know if other folks can see this chat, but there's a talk about smutty poetry always. So I do. I do. I, I enjoy it. Um, and we actually have an event at Glad Day regularly called Smut Peddlers that started um, literally because we just wanted to tell sexy stories to each other. So uh, so I'm always down for that. Um, and uh, so I just, you know, having that be accepted and not weird, not weirding people out because in our community, sometimes because of all that colonial violence and history, it does, right? We're not supposed to talk about sex. We're not supposed to talk about, especially like non-heteronormative sex and especially not, you know, um, non-monogamous sex. Like these are all things that we're never supposed to mention in any company. Um, so I think, you know, pushing back on those things because so many of our stories, our traditional stories are freaking hilarious and so filthy, so filthy. So, um, that's a good note, I think. So I'll say me quick then. Actually, I can confirm. I got a book about uh, Patricia Nengawantz is a language teacher, an Ojibwe language teacher from Laxol First Nation. Um, she put out a book of traditional stories um, from Laxol that she had heard as a child. You know, these were things that she, that she, heard, that she heard as a child. And one of them is uh, the skull, the rolling skull, which is apparently also a Cree story. And I'm reading through these stories and I'm like, these are naughty. <laughs> we have a story for why penises are the size that they are. Because, you know, she got mad and she was like, yeah. <laughs> it was like this massive life size. Anyway, I put it out on Twitter because it was just so hilarious. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so Sean and Angela and Tate, if you guys have a website where people can access some of your work, if you could put that into our chat and then uh, Janessa will get that out there because I think uh, I think people are it's, uh, people are here for splitty poetry. That's <laughs> so we're 
actually getting very close to our hour and a half, which is bonkers. This conversation is fast. So just by way of kind of a, a final trip around the circle, what book did you not read, but you heard about today and now you want to read it? Angela, we'll start with you. I want to read Half Breed. Well, I, did, I knew about Half Breed and I want to read that, but I also want to read Split Tooth. So it's, it's, a, it's a balance. Okay, Nick. Uh, I'd like to read Half Breed and uh, the Two Spirit Journey. Tate. Tate Sorry. just wants to read Sean's poetry. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at Sean's poetry right now. <laughs> Smutty poetry is coming. Uh, actually, I'm going to leave it at that. Yep, I'm going to stock your Instagram now, Sean. So. <laughs> Robin? I'm also in for smutty poetry, so just saying, I will also be stalking, but um, Split Tooth. It is on my nightstand, but I've been warned and I have not ever felt strong enough yet to read it. Um, but after hearing everybody today, maybe it's time. So thank you. Sean? I think I want to finish split too slowly. Like again, it's for me. It's really like po like almost like poem by poem. Um, so I'll commit to to finishing that at some point. It's also just a beautiful book. Like it it's beautifully bound and like looks looks really pretty. Um, uh, and I think fierce is the other one uh, that I'm really interested in. So um, you know I'm gonna see or you know, the, the true answer is whatever I can get on Kobo that's not going to take 12 weeks to come from the Toronto Public Library <laughs> old system. Um, but Fierce is here. up there. <laughs> uh, for me, I think that'll be uh, Mani Chakabee's um, biography, partly because I think it's the only one on the list that I haven't read, but also um, I know Maya. And you know, so I, you know, I'm connect. I'm you know, connected with. I'm connected with Maya, and and she's a really interesting person. I really like her. So I want to hear from another Catholic. I want, I want, I want, I want to hear that story. I want to know. I want to know that story as well. And anyway, I'm just so pleased about all of the things that we talked about. You guys have given me a lot to think about, and you know, like you've given me smutty poetry, which is outside of my comfort zone really three years of talking to Carrie you'd think I'd be more comfortable with it but no I was raised white <laughs> so I'm doing my best doing my best so um just any last words from anybody I've really I've really enjoyed all of the contributions that everybody has brought and given me and kind of the way you guys kind of play off of each other and you know anyway yeah you guys as always, these panels give me so much to think about. So any last words from anybody? I'll start picking on people. I, I, I just want to thank everyone. I, I just really want to thank everyone for your just your openness and your honesty and your truth. I just, um, it, it just lit my heart. Thank you. Sean, any last words? Um, 
I just want to say thank you, Chimi Gwich and Askamatin, for that. Um, I will, because we've talked about Smutty Poetry, and I would be remiss in, in not saying this. Um, we were actually nominated for, uh, we're a finalist for a Lambda, because <laughs> uh, we did a, a Glad Day 50th anniversary uh, um, zine uh, that a lot of my uh, poetry is featured in. Uh, so I'll see if I can find the link uh, for that. Uh, it's also got some very smutty photos in it. So uh, just be, be aware that is a definite sort of like draw the shades and <laughs> not, not for kids uh, kind of situation or for kids, you know, it depends on your parenting relationship, I suppose. Um, so anyway, uh, so I will uh, throw that in the chat also. Um, but I'm just really grateful to to be able to have this conversation and to chat about uh, all this stuff. It was a, a really good time. Miigwech. Nick? Uh, I also just want to thank everyone. Uh, thank you for inviting me to this space, Patty. I've really enjoyed hearing from everyone and getting to know everyone just a little bit. Um, I uh, I do some abortion storytelling work as um, a transgender person who had an abortion. Uh, so if anyone's interested, I was in a documentary called Ours to Tell about abortion access in the United States. And uh, kind of followed four abortion storytellers and we kind of did a retrospective of um, our abortion stories and uh, what that means for abortion access in the future. So uh, it's called Ours to Tell and it's on YouTube, just if anyone's interested. If you could drop the title in the chat for Janessa, she'll get that out to everybody. Tate? And then we'll give the last word to Dr. Robin. Yeah, Wopilotanka for having me on. Um, so interesting, love it. I want to leave you with a quote. Um, it kind of follows with what Angela had mentioned about writing as activism or writing as sort of like your expression and outlet. And as somebody who considers himself a storyteller, I like to think of myself as living by this quote. It's from a tweet uh, of Teju Cole, and I'll drop his uh, link there in the, the chat later. But in 2014, he wrote, writing as writing, writing as rioting, and writing as writing, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. And on the best days, all three. And so I really like this concept of how writing really is all encompassing <laughs> and plays into a lot of the work that we're just constantly doing, almost inherently, right? Especially when you consider yourself or consider the work you do like as a form of storytelling, which I think most of what we do in life, especially if you're a caregiver is, right? Just that passing down of knowledge. So you're doing a great job, Angela, and all of you. So I appreciate uh, being part of this space. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tate Miigwech. Robin? I think you should have just ended there because I'm not gonna come up with anything that eloquent at the moment. No, I love that poem. <laughs> I just wanna say thank you so much. Um, We've had a really rough couple of days at work and I, it's been really nice to come and sit in a room full of people and talk um, about books. I mean, that's what I love. And um, all of you are so brilliant and I've learned so much from each of you. And I just, you know, thank you for asking me to be part of this. And um, I just, I can't wait to come back. <laughs> we will have you back. And I would be remiss in saying that um, thanks to a relationship with the Vice Provost of Indigenous Engagement at Brock University. Um, Ambe does receive some financial support and uh, we really, really appreciate that because uh, people are worth their labor, right? So yes, 
So yay, thanks to Brock University. Um, somehow I'm gonna have to put that logo on the web page because y'all are giving me money and not getting any credit for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, so thank you everybody. And thank you people in the chat. Next month is uh, Richard Wagami's uh, month. Um, so we're gonna be talking about coming home. Uh, that is a really, when I was developing this list of, again, I'm going to blame Kyle because Kyle had just asked for a couple of Indigenous books to read. And then I wound up going month by month. And I wasn't planning on doing this. I was just going month by month. And so I made June because I was thinking about fathers. I made June Richard Wagami's Bob month. Um, and, you know, which now that I'm doing panels is really challenging because unless I have a seance, um, <laughs> we're going to be able to have them with us. Uh, but the theme isn't going to be about coming home. And we're really fortunate that Sheila Rogers, um, who is a close friend of Richard, Richard Bott, um, is going to be with us uh, to talk about her relationship with him and uh, his books and the themes of coming home. We're also going to have uh, Dr. Raven Sinclair, who has done a ton of research on the 60s scoop. And then uh, Daniel Delgado, who has been on the podcast before. He's a Jewish Quechua writer. Um, living in the Southwest and, uh, you know, and, and this, you know, being a father and we had talked with him previously about being indigenous on land that wasn't, you know, being a long way from home. Um, so, you, you know, so those are the three and really if anybody is a big fan of Richard Wagamishba and wants to come back and talk about coming home and his books, hit me up because I got two more spots <laughs> that I need to fill for this conversation. So yeah, so come back in June and uh, I promise I'll get the information to everybody out soon. Um, thank you guys so much for being reminded at the last minute and not standing me up. <laughs> thank you for listening. Ambe streams live throughout 2021 on www.twitch.tv/pattywithaY_wbk on the third Wednesday of every month. Episodes are archived there as highlights and released as podcasts to those who are subscribed to Medicine for the Resistance. Medicine for the Resistance is a podcast I co-host with Carrie Goring, where we explore themes similar to the conversation you just heard. The Colonial Project wants to control how and if we see each other. Our work is in investigating the stories we were not told so that we do. You can support this work at Patreon slash pay your rent or by buying us a coffee at ko fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can find out more about me and the things I do at daanis.ca where I post transcripts for these episodes as well as thoughts on my blog. You can sign up for my newsletters. You can find me on Twitter at g-i-n-d-a-a-n-i-s if you want to talk about the things you've heard. Thank you to Pearlie Papineau for her editing skills and Liz Barkley for the transcripts.